Original content. Content. Compelling discussions. Audio on demand. This is a Podcast 225 production. The issues. What's going on now? What's happening in the state? The people. Carl Dabity. We've got Michael Shingle, Taylor Moore, Jay Darden, Congressman Garrett Gray, Richard Condon. He is Ryan Clark. Sharon Weston Broom. The podcast. And we're going to talk about that. This is the Clay Young Show. Thanks, Neil. Welcome back to the Clay Young Show. It's episode 232 on your podcast device here at podcast225.com. Excited about today's show. Got two guests, a two for one today. We're going to talk in the second half of the show with John Cuvion about Super Tuesday that took place this week as we record episode 232, where Joe Biden came out smelling like roses. He got a little bit of a tighter grip on the Democratic nomination and being the bell cow for the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders is right there with him. Biden got 566 delegates. Sanders got 501. And as you now know, in the aftermath of Super Tuesday, Mayor Pete Buttigieg is gone. Mike Bloomberg is gone. Elizabeth Sanders is hanging on, but I don't think there's much of uh, of a hope there. And listen, last week this time, I thought Pete Buttigieg and Mike Bloomberg had a better chance at some staying power. Not saying they were going to get the nomination, but staying power. Talked about that last week. I'm going to ask John Cuvion about that in our discussion when he comes in studio. Before that, though, James Toulier, the father of Nick Toulier, is going to be our guest by way of phone. He is in Houston, as many of you know. And he shared something with me last week. And I didn't think something like this could be possible. I guess it just never, it, obviously it is, just never crossed my mind that they would have to deal with a situation like this. But I'm going to let him tell you about it. Unbelievable. And he'll give you an update on how Nick is doing. And then again, tell you about the last few months and give you some backstory on some things that you may have noticed from him on social media. That's coming up in just a second. Listen, the governor's prayer breakfast, we've been talking about it. It takes place Tuesday, March 10th. As we record this, it's next week. It's the 56th annual breakfast of this kind. It's going to be at the Crown Plaza here in Baton Rouge. And the keynote is Barry Black, Dr. Barry Black, the chaplain of the U.S. Senate and a retired rear admiral in the U.S. Navy. And I'm looking forward to hearing from him. He spoke as keynote at the National Prayer Breakfast in 2017. So we look forward to welcoming him to Baton Rouge. I said to you last week that Coach O and his wife will be in attendance at this year's Governor's Prayer Breakfast. Looking forward to hearing from the coach as he shares his perspective on faith and how it guides his life. And what I'm even more excited about is I have the distinct honor, the pleasure of introducing him at this year's Governor's Prayer Breakfast. Excited about that. So hopefully if you're there, I'll see you there. Wave. Say hello. In fact, if you haven't bought tickets yet and you're thinking about buying tickets, don't wait around. Go get it. Get her done. L-A-G-P-B dot org, Louisiana Governor's Prayer Breakfast. 
You can go online, buy your tickets there. Tickets are only 50 bucks. You get a magnificent breakfast and a chance to be in the company of many people, both in the business and faith community, all gathered together to lift Louisiana up in prayer, which, as I'm sure many of you will agree, is a very necessary thing. All right, an incredible story about an incredible man awaits you. The only interactive podcast in the capital city that lets you help solve a crime. There was a shooting. Okay, is someone shot? Yes, someone is shot. The Crime Stoppers Podcast with Clay Young. Just some suspicious people running through the parking lot before. Real stories. It was my first love. Real crimes. Real people. Real justice. The Crime Stoppers Podcast with Clay Young, exclusively at podcast225.com. Clay Young here with Brian Lowe with Brian Lowe Financial. Brian, you hear the term 401k a lot now, but they may not be for everyone, correct? Well, look, you know, if you don't have an emergency fund, mm-hmm. you got to create the emergency fund. Right. If your employer doesn't match your contributions, you know, we can save the money somewhere else. Although right. it is on a pre-tax basis, so I would consider the 401k. If you're swimming in debt, you know, a lot of people are afraid to call me because they know how much debt they have. Give me a call. I've gotten through every situation. People take my class. They go, oh, I'm afraid to talk to you. Why? Well, you know what? I have debt. Who cares? Let's figure it out. Let's help pay down the debt. Let's do some debt consolidation planning. If you're worried about future tax increases down the road, look, let's find some ways to lower your taxes. If you no longer work for the same company, you've changed jobs, what to do with the 401k. There's a lot of smart people people running around not know what to do with their 401k, give me a call. Let's figure out what your next step is. Having the right information could make all the difference in your financial future. Look Brian and his team up online at brianlowfinancial.com. This is The Clay Young Show. Back with James Toulier, the father of Nick Toulier. As many of you will remember, Nick was one of the officers shot during the summer of 2016 Nick and his mother and father have been in Houston and uh, Nick as I said to you you've heard me say on this show before is one of the toughest men I have ever seen and he is still fighting and James is with us now to talk about how Nick is doing but to also share something with you that he shared with me last week that is absolutely astonishing JT how are you bud I'm doing okay how about you? Well, I'm doing well. It's it's good to have you here. So first up, right to it. How, how's Nick doing? He's uh, he's okay today. Uh, we still have him taking uh, steroid. He had a case of what they determined was bronchitis about a week or so ago, and he's still on that. And it causes the sputum in his lungs to be thickened somewhat, and it you know makes it harder to suction him. We suction through his trach, but other than that, he's he's been we're good. For- and I, I've, we, I, like a lot of people, have seen the the videos that are that are out that you post and photographs. And there's one picture with one of his boys with him a few days ago. Correct? Yes. Yep. And, uh, that, and, and how- that was an all moment. Yeah. 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 Tell us about that. Uh, well, uh, you know, his boys came to visit, uh, and uh, and. Gage was, uh, they were watching TV, and Gage was laying on Nick's bed beside Nick. Nick was in his power chair, and uh, Gage laid over against Nick, and Nick, if you see that picture and look at it good, Nick laid his head over toward Gage. And, uh, I mean, when those boys are here, 
Nick wants to, you can see Nick moves his lips. He wants to talk to them. Yeah. And he watches every move they make. He watches them when they eat over off to the side at the table and everything they do. He's, he's got his head watching them. You know, he's, those boys are still his life. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you know, for people wondering and, and listening to this and who may be wondering, you know, what can we do? Can we help? Is there anything he needs? What, what would be your answer to those questions? Continued prayers. That's what yeah. we've always said. And, uh, power prayers would save Nick. We know that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we uh, just really appreciate people keeping uh, keeping up with Nick and, you know, continuing to pray for him. Um, well, now on to the other thing that, that I wanted to talk about today. You and I had a conversation about a, a week or so ago, and I was checking in to see how you were doing and how Nick was doing, and you shared something with me that for a lot of people, it will give some perspective on why you have been so careful about who's around Nick and why you've been so private. Share with, with the folks listening what you shared with me last week. Okay. Uh, let me give just a hair of background. Uh, to back uh, when we were at a Lady of the Lake Hospital in Baton Rouge in the weeks after Nick got shot, uh, one night a call came in and uh, it accidentally got switched to ICU where Nick was. And uh, sometimes things are meant to happen a certain way uh, because at the switchboard when they received the call, a uh, person started asking what room Deputy Nick Couillet was in. So they ended up switching it to ICU. The ICU nurse had actually been in the military and uh, apparently in, uh, involved in military police or something, he started documenting immediately when the, it, he heard the tone of voice, of the tone of questioning. Anyway, the caller wanted to know what room Deputy Nick Touillet was in, and the nurse says, we can't give out that information. Uh, we don't even show that Nick Touillet is in this hospital. Well, that irritated the caller and the caller started demanding to know what room Nick Touillet was in. The caller said he was a, a minister registered with the hospital and uh, he wanted to come to that room. So the nurse ends up telling the person, uh, I don't, you know, if a family doesn't want you in a room, you can't enter that room. That person then says, I don't care what any family wants or doesn't want. I can go in any room in that hospital and lay hands on any patient I want to. Well, then, during this conversation, the nurse actually gets the person to tell him his name. So uh, law enforcement got involved and found out this was a convicted murderer. He had been out of prison for about six months. His middle name was Eugene, same middle name as the shooter, Gavin Eugene Long. And uh, their best determination, they told us, was they felt that this person uh, thought he was the anointed one to finish the job that the original shooter had done. And so uh, he was going to try to get to Nick. So uh, they, you know, then, you know, a couple other things happened uh, through our stay there. Uh, they had a, a preacher, that uh, real preacher, uh, was on their way to get to Nick. 
and uh, law enforcement got notified they were they were intended to get to Nick's room and uh, pull him out of his bed. Now, all this time, Nick's still in a coma in ICU. Their intent was to pull him out of his bed and heal him on the spot. Well, needless to say, that would have had detrimental effects if that would have happened. Um, then they had another case where uh, this guy portrayed himself as a cop's preacher. And he did get in Nick's room four times. And wow. uh, one time he made the comment that one of my other sons had invited him. So I checked that out, found out that to be a lie. We, you know, uh, let the hospital know about it. They checked into it. This person wasn't registered with the hospital either as a minister. And, uh, you know, so uh, law enforcement informed him to stay away. So but, uh, they also informed us through this time that uh, we would need to be watchful of Nick's safety now for the rest of his life. Because uh, they said, you know, in their experience, these things will continue to happen. So since then, you know, every once in a while uh, through Facebook, you know, it's, I guess it's happened a couple to a few times a year. I'd get a message in Facebook uh, detrimental to Nick's health. Some of them say, you know, I wish he, I wish you would die and and things like that. Well, when I would get them, I would just, uh, you know, delete them and block that person from our Facebook uh, entry. Now I wish I wouldn't have because I'd like to be able to go back and see who those people were and, uh, you know, and what their actual comment was. But anyway, uh, the, the latest event happened that really raised the flags back up. Uh, Sherry, as most know, takes care of us, all of our affairs, pretty much in the home, you know, uh, the Baton Rouge area. She runs the Nick Touye Strong Facebook page and another Nick Touye Strong Facebook page that's of a different name. She called me the morning of January the 9th. Hang on just a second. Sherry called me the morning of January the 9th. And that's this year? That's this year? This year. Okay. uh, You know, a couple of months ago. And said she had to talk to me. She she actually woke me up. She knows my schedule. I'm up with Nick all night long, so I sleep during the day. But uh, something happened. She had to call me. She said she had received a threat on Nick through uh, a Facebook uh, uh, message. It came through Messenger, uh, Facebook Messenger. She had already called the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office about it, and it was a direct threat on Nick's life. Uh, Part of the message had apparently been sent in October, but some kind of way got caught on the web and didn't come through. And the reason I say that is because uh, what Sherry received January the 9th was uh, multiple messages and their time stamp. The last one was time-stamped January the 9th. The others were time-stamped in October. So, um, you know, apparently the January uh, message pushed the others on through. But the message in October said, and I'm reading it, uh, I kill you in that peg tube at tier 
or moral harmony to death. I stab you, and I see you. I kill you at Houston Methodist Hospital. I stab you when you were on life support. I stab Danielle McNichol. I stab you. That was the message in October. Then the one in January says, I stab you. So, anyway, uh, you know, of course, I, I, I called, uh, immediately called Tear, because uh, Nick uh, on January the 9th was at Tear. And they have protocols that they have to, you know, go through when a patient gets a threat, and they did. Security went to a heightened level for that. Uh, those protocols, insurance, insurance, you know, for some reason have they have glitches that these. I don't want to say what the protocols are, but the protocols call use and cause coverage to be turned down uh, until we have to spend our time, call them up and work through it and get it straight. Um, <clears throat> I want to go back on the date in October. Uh, I'm not going to say the, the actual date, but the problem that really raised the flag with me is the comment in October said, I, I kill you at Houston Methodist Hospital. We never never as a rule say what hospital Nick is in except Tear. Tear is the only facility we ever name. So the problem is uh, Nick has been in five different hospitals here uh, for various reasons. Uh, three different hospitals with and at the ER. That date in October, Nick was in, in a, as a fact hmm. in Houston Methodist Hospital. Hmm. All of these hospitals, when we check him in, they ask a question: Do you want to be in the public directory or not? And we, you know, we know they don't immediately ask. We go ahead and tell them Nick is not to be listed as a patient. Uh, that's for safety reasons, and we tell them why. And so they do not give out information on Nick. So how did that person get information to know that Nick was in Houston Methodist that day in October? Hmm. So um, anyway, I also informed EBRSO, Sheriff's Office, and uh, between them and Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office, they contacted the FBI. They had all checked in to see where this this message came from. It ended up being from somebody's messenger account in Illinois. So the FBI and Chicago Police Department, I was told, now I'm getting this third hand because the FBI has yet to talk to me. That's an issue I have. Yeah. Uh, but they went to this person's house. The person initially said that they didn't do it. So, you know, first thoughts were that person's account got hacked. But then they determined that uh, 
this this person is a, a retired adult, as I'm told, a, a mother. They determined that her 21-year-old daughter, which uh, we're told has autism, is the one that made the threats on Nick. Really? Uh, yes. And the mother said that she didn't know that the daughter had access to her account, um, didn't know she could get into it, but apparently she had, and the mother would take measures to prevent it from happening in the future. Well, here's where my problem comes up. Uh, from what I'm gathering, the FBI seems to say, okay, well, that's it. You know, the mother says it won't ever happen again, so we're just going to drop it. Well, that's, uh, unless I'm wrong, this was a federal offense done over social media. Yeah. You know, I, I know people will say, well, you got to understand this is person's got autism. Well, I, I, I do understand that, but they have to understand some other issues. Number one, you're taking that mother's, you know, answer that the person has autism. Right. Where's the proof? I want to see a doctor's diagnosis that the person has autism. Number two, uh, the mother says she'll handle it. So what if the mother dies next week? Who's going to control this person if they're fixated in on Nick? To me, this needs to be in a judge's purview. A judge needs to verify, yes, this person does truly have autism. And the judge needs to verify that this person is getting the treatment and therapy to prevent them from fixating on Nick again in the future. And and indeed, so, and and that this person was specifically the one who did make the threat. Yes, because how do we know that's just not some ruse or cover up for somebody else that yeah. How does a young lady make the threat? How does a young lady twenty one with autism uh get beyond hospital protocols and traps to the degree that she can find out that Nick is there? That's a good that's a good uh, you know, very good question. I don't know the answer to. But you know, that person to say they're autistic, uh they've got a high level of functioning to where, you know, they had to call these hospitals in Houston, and some kind of way they got past, uh, you know, security measures and found out that, and that that really raises alarms with me. Yeah. You know, and, and, and our problem is we shouldn't have to be concentrated all on Nick's safety. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, it's kind of more so on me than Mary. Mary's sure. concentrated on his health, a little bit on his safety, yeah. because she knows I'm going to follow up on the safety no issue. Question. But we ought to be able to concentrate 100% on Nick's health. Right. But we can't. You know, we we'll always have to have this in, in the back of our minds. So, um, when um, Nick, uh, I guess a few weeks ago, or a couple of weeks ago, he goes back into ER. We always, uh, like I said, we never named the hospital he's at. 
But we do say Nick has just been admitted to the ER, and we ask for prayers. And we, you know, we'll say what what you know is going on with him that as we're seeing, and uh, you know, because people want to be able to pray for certain reasons, they they feel it it helps, and it is it's it's powerful. But because of this January the ninth stuff that happened, then I had to call. You know, I'm on my way to the hospital with Nick and Mary. I call Sherry and Kieran. And because Karen always helps us out with, she, you know, posts uh, for Nick's uh, needs and prayers also. Yeah, Karen, so I called uh, uh, them. James Both is talking of about them knew about this, this I, stuff and, you I, know, this the threat on Nick's life. And so between the three of us, we, we're all three fearful to, to even post Nick's at the ER. Yeah. I didn't post it till he was out. And I shouldn't have to be in that situation. Correct. Yeah, Nick needs prayers. I ought to be able to readily go on, on there and say, look, please, pray for Nick. You know, here's what's going on. But now I'm in a situation where I can't do that. I I have I'm, I, I'm at a heightened level of security now where I had, you know, I've always been at a level of security, but not that high as, you know, that now it's like I'm back. At OLOL, when the convicted murderer yeah. tried to get the Nick. So, anyway. Well, you know, it's it, it's it's tragic. And by the way, James was referencing Kieran Chala here at uh, WAFB, a reporter there, who I yes. know keeps up with you and, and, as you say, posts when, when something's going on with Nick. I, and, and people follow your what you say on social media. And I got to say, I agree with you 100%. With everything else y'all are dealing with, there's n- it's hard to believe that you also have to think about some whack job trying to get to Nick after all of this and hurt him even further. Yes. And, you know, I think if uh, something else uh, seems like the mother said, well, the 21-year-old doesn't drive. Uh, well, the 21-year-old apparently knows how to use the telephone and knows how to use the Internet. That the person doesn't have to be able to drive to cause harm to somebody what if they go online and hire a hitman some kind of way or or you know, at least I, or at, the, at minimum post where he is and and because yeah. i mean the world is crazy and we've seen the links that some people with with mental illness will go to harm someone else and nick does have a profile because of what has happened here and and you know it's been something that people have talked about all over the country so Man, you know, and it's I, I hate that for you. And, and as I said, when you told me that last week, I was blown away because I'm thinking there's there's no way that this that there are people out there who would do this. But, you know, there it is. Yeah. Well, is there. You so, know, go ahead. You know, I, and I was, you know, I guess alluding to somewhat. Uh, I was very um, uh, elusive in my update there for two days after Nick was in that ER before I came out and said, you know, here's what happened over the weekend. And I shouldn't have to be in that situation. But again, like like you said, how do we really know that, uh, number one, does a 21-year-old have autism for, for sure? How do we know for a fact that that's the person that did the, the, the threat? Uh, it just uh, again, this needs to be in a judge's purview 
not uh, an investigator that just went out and made a decision and put themselves in the judge's uh, seat. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's why we have courts. That's yeah. why we, you know, have the laws we have. Well. You know, we all are are praying for you, and you know you're on our mind, and and you know, all of you, Nick, you, Mary, everyone, we're we're thinking about you guys, and and listen, would you keep would you keep us posted? Could could we do this a little bit more regularly than I think the last oh, time yeah. we talked was last fall? Uh, but and anytime yeah. something's coming up where you want to get word out to the public about anything, you always have a platform here, man. You know, all you got to do is text yeah. me or call me. Let me say one other thing that I forgot to mention. Okay. If if you listen to the threat that got made, it also said, I stabbed Danielle McNichol. As I've said, Danielle's moved on with her life. Yeah. But she still lives here in Houston. Sure. Keeps in touch with us. And she does come to visit Nick every once in a while. She, for one, we get her to cut his hair. Uh, but because she was named in that threat, I had to call Danielle, and over a week's period after that, Danielle broke down over three times. Wow. And so she, you know, she told me she's looking over her shoulder now because she's fearful of her life. She went and joined a, a, a gun uh, range, and uh, she's practicing with her, her gun. Uh, you know, she shouldn't have to be in that situation correct you know so but anyway well pass along our thoughts to her as well and and as i said you know going forward we want to keep in touch with you about this and you know repeating it again you always have a place here to talk with i'm sure people love hearing from you and hearing how nick is doing man yep all right james toulier in houston thank you jt thank you clay podcasts have become a great way to get radio on demand if you've wanted your own podcast, the time to call us is now. This year, Podcast 225 will be launching new shows and yours can be one of them. You won't have to build your own website and you'll be able to use professional broadcast equipment that will make your show sound amazing. If you'd like to know more, call 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Be a part of the on-demand audio movement today. Exactly. Tone of Louisiana has been helping businesses in Baton Rouge save money on their telecommunications for over 40 years. Executone will help businesses upgrade their phones and intercom systems, save money, and never have to worry about local customer support. Doctors' offices, hospitals, schools, businesses, it doesn't matter. All kind have depended on the good people at Executone to upgrade technology and save money. I have a question for you. Do you like saving money? Sure, of course you do. Here's another one. Do you want to keep the most up-to-date phone and intercom technology? while saving money. That's what it's all about. That's a no-brainer. Don't get sucked in by out-of-town companies who are not here if you need technical support. Executone has been here, and they believe in the value of customer service, baby. Don't take my word for it. Give them a call, 225-295-3500. That's 295-3500. Oh, look them up. ExecutoneLA.com. Executone of Louisiana. They still here, and they're going to continue to give you great service. Here we go. This is the Clay Young Show. Should we say, oh, what a night, or, or, or oh, what a race, or oh, what a contest, yes. oh, what a contest. <laughs> Listen, Super Tuesday has just wrapped up. 
back in our uh, second talk segment of this episode of the Clay Young Show with John Cuvion, who's here with us in studio, fresh on the heels of Super Tuesday. John, did you did you get surprised by much of what happened or, or went down last evening? The extent of the Biden victory, yes. And, you yeah. know, to, for those who like to reduce it down to simple sports scores, it's 10 and 4. Yeah. So, you know, mentioned this in the in the open. Biden took I have it here in front of me somewhere. Five hundred and sixty delegates, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's from memory. He he beat uh, Bernie Sanders. It was five hundred sixty six delegates and Sanders had five hundred one. The closest to them was Elizabeth Warren with sixty one. And uh, th this that is kind of a surprise. So why was Joe so strong on Super Tuesday? So basically what I think happened is this. There's definitely a B.C. and an A.D. to this whole Democratic nomination saga. OK, I think the thing that's important to understand is that you have two swim lanes in the Democratic Party. You have the more liberal progressive swim lane, okay. which is occupied by Bernie Sanders and by Elizabeth Warren and also by Tom Steyer before he dropped out. Right. You then have the moderate swim lane, which was much more crowded until today, where you had Joe Biden, you had Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Michael Bloomberg. So you had these two halves of the Democratic Party that were basically competing against each other, but because the progressive side was less crowded, that's yeah. how Bernie Sanders was able to notch these wins up until Super Tuesday. But then something funny happened along the way to the Democratic nomination contest, and that okay. was just as Bill Clinton was able to spin his second-place finish in New Hampshire back in 92 to make him the comeback kid, when Joe Biden finished second in Nevada yeah. due to a strong Hispanic and, to a lesser extent, a strong black vote because mm -hmm. there, you know there's a, a significant black population in North Las Vegas— Joe Biden was able to use that as the comeback kid narrative, which coupled with the fact that Democrats got scared of the thought of a Sanders nomination, all of a sudden psych the wheels of psychology went into motion to where mm -hmm. anybody in the moderate swim lane not deemed to be a viable candidate, the pressure got put on them to drop out of the race, which one after one they did after Joe Biden cleaned up in South Carolina. So there's yeah. a lot of context to what happened last night. But the bottom line is basically it's the marquee matchup we've been looking for all season, which is Biden versus Sanders. And with all due respect to those who supported Elizabeth Warren, she was not, is not, and will not be a viable factor in the Democratic yeah. nomination. She's basically existing in name only, but she does not have any evidence of strength anywhere. She, in fact, lost her home state of Massachusetts yeah. to Joe Biden. Yeah, so... Biden cleaned up. He won Alabama. He won Arkansas. He won Maine. He won Massachusetts. As you say, he won Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia. And if you were wondering about the other guys in the contest, and I'm sure many of you have seen this by now, but Mayor Pete only got 26 delegates. Mike Blumberg gets 53, and I'm going to get to the two of them. In fact, I'll do it right now before we dig back into the candidates that remain. Sure. A week ago, I believed that Mayor Pete was going to be a factor because of his appeal to moderates in terms of, of Democratic policy, okay? But he didn't have any money. Right. 
I think Mike Bloomberg, who I thought would be around as a factor, is no longer. But he has all the money, but he could not make the connection. And I think I think Bloomberg got out too early. I'm curious as to why he's getting out right now. And some will say, well, he's not making he's not making any waves. Well, you understand, John, he's not been in this thing more than two months, you know, officially really in the water doing it more than, you know, what, two, two and a half months. Right. And money is not his issue. He's worth sixty two billion dollars. So a long preamble to ask you about <laughs> Pete Buttigieg getting out now, not being able to connect with the kind of donors that would give him the cash and why Bloomberg would walk away now when he's already so deep in in terms of the spend. So there's really two halves to this question, which is kind of interesting. So I'll start with Pete Buttigieg. Mm-hmm. Pete Buttigieg had the potential and that he had a good campaign staff that was well organized. And my understanding was they were pretty good at raising money. He had two problems, though. The first is that if you think in terms of the moderate versus the liberal swim lanes, Pete Buttigieg was clearly in the moderate swim lane of the Democratic Party. However, he could never overcome the colossus, which was Joe Biden. And the reason he could not overcome that colossus is Pete Buttigieg's second problem, which he allowed, in my opinion, to fester beyond which he became no longer a viable candidate. And that was he had a black person problem, to put it bluntly. Yeah. In other words... Explain what that means. Right. So Pete Buttigieg being mayor of South Bend, Indiana, there were apparently some incidents yeah. regarding uh, policemen uh, yep. treatment of, of the black citizens there, yep. which Pete Buttigieg was never able to successfully address. Mm-hmm. And so the impression got created, whether he intended it to or not, that he was not a friendly candidate to the black vote. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing about the black vote in the Democratic Party, it is the mirror image of the evangelical vote in the Republican Party. It Bingo. In, it in itself cannot win you the nomination, but if... It'll get you to the party. It'll get you to the party. But conversely, if you are considered to be an enemy of evangelicals or black people, they do have veto power. No question. And to your point, but let's let, yeah. go to Bloomberg before I follow so that's, up so on that, that. So that to me was a problem that Buttigieg had. And, you know, the thing was he did well in unrepresentative primaries. In mm. other words, the Democratic electorate is far more diverse than the Democrat nationally is far more diverse than the Democratic electorate in Iowa, New Hampshire. So when Pete Buttigieg did respectfully amongst voters in Iowa, New Hampshire, well, that's all well and good. But the thing is to be the candidate with a broad-based coalition, you need to expand your appeal to Hispanics and or blacks, which Mm. he did not do in Nevada or South Carolina. Therefore, it was curtains for Pete. Then we get to Mike Bloomberg. So there's two things going on there. I'll start off with one of the things I've experienced, and that is affluent businessmen do not like being embarrassed. That is why Tom Steyer dropped out after his poor showing in South Carolina, and it is why uh, Mayor Mike, so to speak, dropped out of the nomination contest. But there were two mistakes, in my opinion, that Mike Bloomberg made. That was his belief that he could cut cut ahead of the line and skip the first four contests, Mm -hmm. just like Rudy Giuliani foolishly thought he could do in 2008. Mike Bloomberg falsely assumed that he could skip the first four contests and just shower a bunch of money on the 14 contests that were last night. Well, there's one small problem with that, and that is while these four contests are going on, the world keeps turning, and people aren't necessarily interested in how wonderful you are. 
So while Mike Bloomberg was ignoring the contest, there was a second thing which I think also got him in trouble. They, the two are closely tied, in my opinion. That was, while he was spending money on TV and not paying attention to what was going on on the ground with the Democrats, all of a sudden he decides to show up in a debate. And lo and behold, he was ill-prepared, so, which to me falls squarely on his staff because the thing is, Presidential debates, or really gubernatorial or statewide debates for that matter, are very high-stakes affairs. Yeah. You need to have someone in your staff who's who's adept at coaching you through the, the inevitable bobbing and weaving you have to do, which ironically Pete Buttigieg was fairly good at in debate, but Bloomberg was not because I think the thing is— He's getting pounded. Everybody was—well, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Joe Biden were all going at his throat the entire time they were on the stage, which is what— Yes, he had he had to have known or someone in his camp should have known that that was going to happen. Right. And so that to me was when the honeymoon swoon, as I call it, for (laughs) Bloomberg started phase, because the thing was, you have to remember at the time, which was early February, people were panicking over whether Biden had the goods to be able to take on Donald Trump. Because one of the things you'll notice in exit poll after exit poll I've seen every election night is something like 60 percent of Democratic voters value the ability to beat Trump over someone who perfectly agrees with you over the issues. Mm -hmm. In other words, the majority of Democrats are pragmatist. They want to win, put to put it more plainly. Yeah. And, and, and you're look, I don't, I don't know how the next few weeks, obviously no one does how they're going to go. I didn't think that I thought Buttigieg and and Biden, uh, excuse me, and Bloomberg were going to have some staying power. Right. Biden has always been kind of the lead horse in this thing. Sanders makes the most noise. But I don't know that anything was really settled about how this fall is going to go in terms of how the because, you know, Trump's going to be there. Oh, yeah. uh, it, and the, the 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 Trump Biden debate is going to be must see TV oh. if Biden is <laughs> yes. the nominee. But what about the chances? And I'm sure you've heard this scuttle out there that Sanders runs as a third party. I mean, it's always a possibility, but here's the way I look at that, is that... He'd be ending his political career pretty much if he did it, though, don't you think? Right. And the thing you have to remember, too, is I think the Democrats are kind of cutting him a lot of slack in the Senate, even though he technically is not a Democrat. Mm -hmm. I think he gets seniority and committee assignments as if he were one Mm -hmm. of their own. You better believe if he were to be disloyal to the party that he is pretending to play in right now, that all those goodies would come down to... end in a crashing hall. You think he cares? Probably not, but I think there's another thing, too, that you have to realize, and that is, to the average Democratic voter, getting rid of Donald Trump is the cause celeb. Sure. And towards that end, I think that would prevent a lot of oxygen from fueling the Sanders campaign. Hmm. What What is the connection he has with young Democratic voters? Well, it's a good question, and I would say there's two halves to it. The first is he's paying attention to what he believes are their issues. Okay. The second, I'm going to I'm going to go way out on a limb and say there's a generational thing. <clears throat> what does that mean? To those of us who are in our 40s, 50s and above, mm-hmm. we grew up in a different world where we saw the ravages of communism yeah. and or its cousin socialism. Sure. And so part of our views are shaped by okay, Bernie Sanders is you know, way too cozy, whether perceived or not, he's way too cozy with these communist and socialist regimes and or their ideology. I mean, he was complimentary of Castro. Yeah. And the man actually said, 
even though he's a he's, he's a I'm paraphrasing a bad person when he's done a good thing with the literacy programs yeah and it's like <laughs> wow man it, you know you, you, if you, so he's killed a bunch of people but he also fed the the, the homeless right. so kudos to him for that well so you I know, think as I, an analogy but what right. is that so what I think so I think context is important here and so that is while Bernie Sanders has an ideology that is more closely aligned with that mindset, yeah. the problem today, in my opinion, is that if you did not grow up under the ravages of communism, you don't really have an appreciation for the bad things it could cause. Or even know what it is. Right. And, and, and I think what might also be a succinct analogy here when you're talking about why perhaps younger people have different political views than those of us in our 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond mm-hmm is there are two events that perhaps we were shaped by. In my case, I remember back in 1979 when, in rapid succession, Iran threw out the Shah of Iran. The, the Shah of Iran got deposed, mm-hmm. and Iran started jacking around with gas prices. Right. And all of a sudden, you had gas lines formed that summer. Right. Gas prices jumped to a dollar a gallon. It was nearly a doubling of the, the price of oil, of gas. Jimmy Carter was lecturing us about how it was all our fault in the cardigan sweater. Yeah. The Soviets invaded Afghanistan. In other words, the political context that a lot of us grew up in was under that of the communist era and or the failures of the late Jimmy Carter presidency. Yeah. If you are a younger person... Well, he didn't die. Right. Well, the failure... The failures of the presidency in terms of... Oh, you mean... You said the late Jimmy Carter. Oh, oh, oh my, yeah. The late... No, the late Jimmy Carter administration. Oh, okay. The, the, yeah, good good clarification point. The last two years, like, things just went... As things headline, just, the wheels fell off for him. Yeah. killing off oh, former Lord, presidents. Yeah. No, 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 you we don't, don't, we don't, don't want to go that. there. Yeah. But I think, you know, like I said, if, you're, if the context with which you grew up under was, you know, the events going on under communist Russia... Yeah. Or, you know, the things like what happened in the last couple of years of the Jimmy Carter administration... Yeah. And the Soviets invading Afghanistan and the failed uh, hostage rescue attempt in Iran. And we were getting pushed around, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have a different view of the world than, say, somebody who grew up in the time period where you saw Hurricane Katrina, the Jack Abramoff scandal, gas prices doubling from 2 to $4 a gallon. And the worst of the worst was the 2008 financial crisis. Sure. So in other words, I'm of the opinion that if you grew up under that context— Socialism has a peculiar appeal to you because it provides, it promises, or it claims to promise security. Yeah. Now, with everything in life, everything has a trade-off. Oh, yes, you'll get your security, but it also means you can be having everything dictated to you. Yeah. And supply and demand, well, <laughs> the government decides that. <laughs> but I think that that, to me, kind of perhaps might explain why people in the younger generation may have different views. And I think Bernie Sanders is playing to that. Yeah. And so... He and Biden are going to be locking up here. Yes. And Bloomberg's already endorsed Biden. Mm-hmm. Did Mayor Pete endorse? Yes. He endorsed he, he Biden. And Amy Klobuchar. At, well, I saw the, the Klobuchar. Dallas, that's yeah. right. So, so they've endor- endorsed Biden. Sanders is uh, uh, Warren is going to stick this thing through for a while, probably. Right. Play Ron Paul. Play Ron Paul, and then eventually get out. Who does she endorse? Do you think? Well, you know, I've been hearing different stories about whether she would endorse Sanders or Biden because there's also stories I've been hearing from Democrats about how there's kind of some bad blood between the uh, Sanders and Warren camps. Yeah, and it, that kind of well, she accused him of something uh, a few weeks back uh, that that was gender related, and he denied yeah. it, and it was apparently in a one-on-one conversation, and yeah. 
So that's a he said, she said, but you know, and who knows? But she's different, man. Well, she just to me comes across as the inflexible ideologue. And you know, that's one of the things too, I think. I was kind of surprised, but not terribly surprised in Elizabeth Warren's losing Massachusetts, because one thing you have to remember, and I'm going to use a, a pop culture reference here, okay. is that the the stereotype of Massachusetts Democrats being like Fraser Crane is not an accurate one. <laughs> you said it's not an accurate one? It's not It's not accurate. In other words, yeah. Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Democratic electorate is much more blue collar and union yeah. and ethnic. And in fact, you'll remember that Obama lost Massachusetts yeah. in the primary and uh, Bernie Sanders lost to Hillary Clinton in 2016 by a narrow margin. Yeah. And I just think what that is, is you still have the prevalence of old-fashioned ethnic politics that... Which means? Means that it's more of a blue-collarish flavor, kind of like what you would see, say, in Illinois or Ohio or Michigan or a place like that. Well, let's say right now we move through the summer and we'll have a chance, a lot, lots of chances to talk mm-hmm. about this. But as we move towards the summer, there's a debate between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren is still there. Yes. If you are Elizabeth Warren and you have to throw it up, Hail Hail Mary, one last shot to keep the, the blood pumping into your campaign, what does she do? So if we want to talk about the proverbial Hail Mary, I look at it this way. Her talk about being the unifying candidate is not going to be really considered as a credible... Unifying who? Yeah, exactly. Well, and plus two, because her issue positions are pretty squarely in the liberal camp, she's never going to be able to convince anybody that she's a quote-unquote yeah. moderate. I don't, I don't know that that person exists in politics anymore in terms of unifying yeah. the parties. I don't think it's a real thing. I, I think you can find agreement on issues, yeah. but in terms of ideology... Whew, and we're dug in pretty deep right now as a, as a society, don't you think? Although I think that I think that even though he was more on the liberal side, that Obama did have traces of pragmatism in his record. Because what was more important to him was winning. Yeah. But the other thing, too, about Elizabeth Warren, so in addition to the fact that she can't pretend to be moderate, she basically have to go straight after, straight after Bernie Sanders. She will have she to has go no straight choice after but Sanders, to, which is a lose-lose for her. It is, but it's the corner in which, into which she's painted herself. It's over, man. It's over. Yeah. Well, the unfortunate thing was, it'd be one thing if she was winning a contest here or there. Yeah. But you keep finishing third and fourth. That's not a demonstration of strength. And to act, and you know, when you're talking about, oh, well, I'm going to have leverage at convention because I have these delegates. Well, that to me is just kind of yeah. serious denial here, because what's going to happen from here on out? I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that Joe Biden's going to win every single remaining contest. That That's foolish. There's going to be some states that are obviously going to be more Bernie Sanders friendly. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the balance of the contest, unless Biden does some awful stumble, I do think he's in the driver's seat. It could happen. It's like Dukakis Jackson all over again in 1988. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it could happen with with Joe, man. So here's an X factor. Here's something about the Biden candidacy or campaign that hasn't happened yet. And if it does happen before the fall, it's a big deal. And that's an Obama endorsement. That's Barack Obama coming out, who is still beloved by members of his party. If Barack Obama comes out, puts his arm around Joe, does a speech somewhere talking about how Joe's the guy to carry for it and you know, what, what they did together and, and all of that, that will play very well with the Democratic base. Yeah. 
and will all but end the contest, I think. All but, but the way I look at it is this. President Obama started off in 2008 from a position of strength. You know, he was he was viewed as a different kind of candidate. McCain was kind of the old cranky guy. He was the only one who could he was the only one who would run. Right. If you remember at that period, Republicans had started to abandon George W. Bush. Yeah. And a lot of the names within the party didn't want to take a shot at even running because they thought that the party had been so tainted right. by the previous eight years. And with the Which economy, I don't think is accurate, but yeah. that's how they felt. And with the economy being as bad as it was, it would have been a foolhardy idea to run yeah. that year. Yeah. So Obama started off with a pretty you know, unequivocal victory, but come 2012, he barely squeaked out a win against Mitt Romney. A suit dummy. And yeah, and the thing was, Mitt Romney was the perfect opponent because he was a suit dummy. Yeah, he he didn't understand how to appeal to voters, and he let himself be caricatured as this, you know, suit dummy. Suit dummy. Yeah, <laughs> as you're saying. So my thing is that while Obama, President, former President Obama, does have some popularity, I think it's more in the 50-50 range. I think the bigger issue is for the Democrats, they have to phrase it as a referendum on Donald Trump as opposed to a choice. True, but President Trump is polling at 50% right now. He is, and I think what's kind of benefiting him in the short term is that while the Democrats are kind of, they, they until last night, they seemed to be kind of aimlessly wandering around, not knowing who their candidate was. Well, if you compare that to an incumbent president who pretty much has no opposition, mm-hmm. I think some people would say, well, gosh, you know, at least Trump seems kind of sort of stable compared to you know this mess going on, on the Democratic side. Some of the Bloomberg stuff that Trump was doing was just, you know, the, yeah. uh, the, the mini mic. Yeah, we don't we don't need that. You yeah, know, just I, and, and I think when it's going to end up being the, the President Trump and Biden, man, oh, it's the name calling. I, I think there is. There is a real chance we can have an F-bomb dropped in a debate. Oh, yeah, easily. And you see, the thing, too, that I think is not yet appreciated, but from looking at the data I've been seeing from day one, is that Democratic turnout in the primaries has been pretty robust. Mm -hmm. And as you'll remember from chats we've had before, primary turnout to me is a distant early warning of things to come. That's right. In other words, the Democrats were not super enthused about Hillary Clinton in 2016. No. Even with Joe Biden, I think people have reached the acceptance stage with him with regards to, you know, who they're going to vote for. So they're going to start to fall in love with him. And the thing is, with falling in love with them, Trump needs to provide an alternate narrative. The economy, to me, is the biggest untouched thing that he really needs to be trumpeting because— other other than, you know, the craziness with the stock market because of the coronavirus— Yeah. The economy's been doing fairly well, yes, and I think been. that as an incumbent, that is certainly a people are making money. Play. Yes, his State of the Union address, in my opinion, was if not the best, it's got to be top three best speeches he's given since he's been in that office. He touched everybody with that speech. Yeah, he touched the demographics that matter in a lot of ways in that speech. It's just the truth. Yeah. Since then, has there been a big gaffe? I don't think there's been a big gaffe since uh, it. Other than the usual insults. Well, I mean, you kind of take that. You know that's going to happen. That ain't right. going to go away. I think the Nancy Pelosi, and we haven't spoken since then, I think the ripping the speech up, oh, yeah, I, don't think that, I don't think that did her any favors. No, because the thing is, it just doesn't look professional. It, it, it's not a good look. And, you know, my thing is I don't care which side of the aisle you're in. 
there's a lot of stuff that happens I don't I don't really need and and just I just think it should be above some of this stuff yeah and and you're right with the president and the economy and I think were it not for some of the tweets or some of the things he says in speeches he'd probably be polling in the upper 50s right now yeah well, what he definitely needs to do is I think he ought to talk about what he plans to do in his next four years yeah because they're working towards that now with the keep America great yeah you know slogan which is it's cleverly done because it's it's a nod to four more years right but I mean that to me needs to be part of his reelection strategy because the thing is once you offer a choice to voters and Joe Biden's biggest problem is he's going to the question is, how many bones is he going to throw to the progressive wing of the party? Mm. Is he going to do something like put Kamala Harris as his vice presidential nominee or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders? In other words, Biden's got his own problems, notwithstanding the fact that I do think the Democrats are turbocharged this year. Yeah. I don't know. That's a that's a, a great point. Like, who's going to be the running mate for Vice President Biden? And what does he tout? What does he say? What Because, you know, what does he compare now to yeah and it's going to be something to see these two guys slug it out uh quickly hear about local politics mm-hmm. i know that the, the the legislative session is a few weeks away yeah actually a few days yeah, away starts, starting monday. starts starts monday right around the corner yeah <laughs> and uh and and it's going to be interesting with uh, such a republican senate and and house and the governor coming in what's your expectation So my thought on that is this is going to be an interesting new test about the dynamics between the governor and the House and the Senate, because one of the things that has changed a lot, besides the fact that term limits has caused a lot of retirements, Mm -hmm. is that before you had more of an antagonism between the House and the Senate and the Senate would take the governor's side. Well, what I've been seeing lately is not just at the leadership level, but the committee chairman level, the House and the Senate and their Senate counterparts and vice versa are working with each other. So that means in Governor Edwards' case, he can't play divide and conquer anymore. So do you think he'll be successful? Well, let me put it this way. I think it's a brand new world that Governor Edwards is going to have to adapt to if he wants to have some semblance of accomplishment in his last four years. Now, he does benefit from the fact that he doesn't have these massive budget deficits like he did four years ago. Mm -hmm. But he does have to kind of have some ideas about what he wants to do that would be in sync with what the Republican legislature is willing to vote for. It's going to be something. The The session does kick off, as we're recording this one, in less than a week on March 9th. I believe that Monday is March yes. 9th because the prayer breakfast is on Tuesday the 10th. Yes. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens. But after the, about that first couple of weeks, we'll get, uh, we'll get JC in here to give us his take on what's going on. Thank you, man. How's how, business? Is good. Good year. It's been a good year, uh, both in nineteen and this year so far. So, and this election cycle is going to be something this fall. I mean, you've oh, got yeah. the local parish elections. You've got the presidential election mm-hmm. on the ballot. All d- depending on what happens with St. George, and that's come back up again. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about. Senate, House. Uh, you have a vacant congressional seat up in Northeast Louisiana. Yeah. You yeah. have reapportionment over the next couple of years. So, yeah, never, never dull moment. Do you think this part of the state is going to get because because the word is this part of the state is going to get another House seat that will likely be a minority House district? Well, so what the what the question mark is going to be is where you draw the second black majority district. And Could be between where Richmond is 
and, and connecting with 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 North because Cedric right. part of Cedric Richmond's district comes into East Baton mm-hmm. Rouge Parish. Yes. Which is interesting. Right. Well, basically what happened, you know, the, the context to that was in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, you mm-hmm. had substantial population losses in yeah. Orleans Parish yeah. and St. Bernard as well. And so Cedric Richmond's district had to expand and to keep its black voting majority East Baton Rouge Parish has a large black voting population, and so that's why it snaked up the river the way it did to Mm. pick up parts of Baton Rouge. So if you had this hypothetical second black district, obviously the inner city Baton Rouge would be part of it, Yeah, and it would obviously be linked up with different parts of the Mississippi River Delta Mm -hmm. and parts of North Louisiana. The big question in my mind about that possibility would be are we talking 49 percent black or 51 percent or 60 percent in other words if it's a 51 percent black district well it's not certain that it would necessarily elect a black representative yeah depending on where it is oh and there's another little thing that has to be considered because this happened back in 1993-94 if you draw the lines too egregiously even with the goal of electing a second black majority congress a second black congressman then you run the risk of that district getting struck down because the courts in the old days, yeah. if you were saying, well, I drew this this crazy-looking district for racial reasons, the courts would give you a pass. But I've seen districts get thrown out even for that reason. Yep. I think what's kind of going to be the more the order of the day is that the districts have more of a compact and look to them to where they, they don't look weird to the naked eye, like yeah. the infamous tomato rot or Z district that Cleo Fields had back in the nineties. <laughs> right. That's right. And he's back in he's back in the legislature this yes. go around too. And in fact he's gonna he's gonna have something to say about how this redistricting goes, as I understand it. So tell people how they can find you, follow you and read John is really good at what he does and he's about to tell you how you can keep up with him. Well, thank you. Yes. So uh, on Twitter, I'm at WinwithJMC, and I like to talk about various things political. I, mm-hmm. I keep it to the numbers and yep. minimize the punditry. Yep. And also have a Facebook page, JMC Enterprises. And like I said, I love to opine on politics. And of course, I'm <laughs> on the media various times throughout the year. That's right. That's right. And he's a regular here on the podcast. Thank you, JC. I appreciate it, brother. Always a pleasure. Promote your business or organization on podcast225.com. Podcast225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for Louisiana listeners. Every month, thousands hear the weekly Clay Young Show. Every week, Clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people. Posting your company's logo on the podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Here we go. Here we go. This is The Clay Young Show. Don't forget about the Governor's Prayer Breakfast next week. As we record episode 232, you can get your tickets now if you haven't done it. At LAGPB.org, the letter salad there. I know, I know, I know. But uh, think Louisiana Governor's Prayer Breakfast. Hey, just Google it. You'll get the website there and you can buy a ticket. Coach O's going to be there. The keynote this year is Dr. Barry Black. Looking forward to being there. I got a table at the event. Hopefully... I will see you there. If I see you there, like I said, in the open wave, say hello. It'll be great to break bread and uh, lift the state up in prayer and hopefully have a have a really great event as the legislative session kicks off. Thanks again to, to 
James Toulier for being on and sharing with us an incredible story, right? Just to think about them having to go through that. And of course, John Cuvion. This guy's really good at what he does and you heard his perspective and he told you all the ways that you can follow him and hopefully you'll take him up on that. As it relates to following people on social media at ClayYoungBR on Twitter, Clay underscore YoungBR on Instagram, Clay Young on Facebook, and of course you can email me directly, Clay at podcast225.com. All right, y'all, have a great one. We'll catch you on episode 233 here on The Clay Young Show. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.